We're continuing today our series of what the world needs now. Would you turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Today we had our first steps class. Once a month, on the second Sunday of every month, it's a, it's a class for new members, for people who are thinking of joining or people who have recently joined. Alan leads that class and he helps everyone to understand, here's what we are about as a church, here's what we offer, here's what we expect of our members. And so that's something we want every, you don't have to go through it, but it's something we want everybody to do uh, as they consider joining with us as a family. And, and people have asked me in the past, and not just here, but in other churches. Why do I need to join a church? Why do I have to sign my name on a line or whatever? Why do I have to make it official? And it's sort of like asking the person you're in love with, well, why do we have to get married? You know, why can't we just live together? God wants us to make commitments to one another. It's a way of saying, I'm in this for the long haul. And when you join a church body, what you're saying is, I am committing to this church. Honestly, I can't tell you any benefits that come with that except the benefit of doing God's will. You don't get better parking if you're a member of First Baptist Church. Actually, your parking gets worse, right? If, if you like that visitor parking, you know, don't join us. Um, and, and I'm not going to love you anymore. Uh, the church staff is not going to minister to you any better if you're a member of the church. The only benefit you get is obeying God. Because here's the thing. God, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning, God does his work through his people, the church. Not just through individuals, but through his corporate body, the church. And as long as you're just part of the congregation, as long as you're just part of the crowd, you're receiving, but you're not giving. When you join a church, you're saying, okay, church, you can count on me. I am going to invest myself, my spiritual gifts, my talents, my resources. I'm going to do what I can to help you accomplish your mission here in this community because I believe that's what God wants me to do. Now, here's the thing. I, in, the, in the days after 9-11, there was a cartoon I saw somewhere. I can't remember where I saw it or who wrote it, but who drew it. But this cartoon showed these two men talking. And one of the men said, I really wish I could ask God when he's going to do something about all the pain and the suffering and the evil in this world. And in the next pain, the second guy said, well, personally, I'd be afraid he would ask me the same question. And I don't know who wrote that cartoon, who drew it, and I don't know if they were a Christian, but what they expressed was a very biblical thought, and that is this, that when God does work in the world, He does it through His people, the church. So if you want to know what God is up to, look at the church. If you want to know what God is like, look at His hands and His feet and His voice, and that is the local body of believers, His church. Keep that in mind. We represent Him. And we're in this series, What the World Needs Now. One of the things we said last week is, what the world needs more than anything else is Jesus Christ. Because at the root of all of our problems, at the root of sexual abuse, at the root of crime, at the root of poverty, at the root of violence, at the root of disease, is ultimately an estrangement from God. That's the cause of all those things. And so only when we are completely reconciled to God will humanity be totally healed. And God does that through his people, the church. How do people come to know Christ? It's not through randomly deciding to pick up a Bible. It's not through randomly turning on a radio station and listening to a sermon. Those things may happen once in a while, but they meet Christ through his people, through us. And that's why the thing the world needs right now more than anything else is for the church to start functioning like the church should. And to get its, get its head out of its own navel and to, and to actually turn its eyes upon Jesus and to follow him faithfully. 
And today, most churches aren't doing that. Today, in this country, most churches aren't functioning the way that they should. Experts will tell you that somewhere between 70 to 80% of churches are either plateaued or declining. That means they're not growing. We're very fortunate here at First Baptist. We're experiencing numerical growth, and that's exciting. But we're the exception to the rule. Experts will say that the only churches that are growing are mega churches, and they're only growing because people from smaller and medium-sized churches are leaving those churches and going to the big churches because the show's better there. Now, that's not the whole truth. We know that's not the whole truth, but it's true enough that it stings when we hear it. We also know, and this is a fact, this is documented, that that group known as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, those who claim no religious affiliation at all, they're growing faster than any religious group in our country. And so some people will say, well, Christianity, therefore, is dying in America. And so within a generation or two, the United States, spiritually speaking, will be a lot like Western Europe today, where there's just little traces of Christianity here and there, lots of empty church buildings that have become other kinds of buildings or have become museums, but not many practicing Christians. But I don't believe that. I don't believe it. I am optimistic, and I'll tell you why. Because the same God who changed the world through the church in the book of Acts, the church that had no resources and no freedoms and no respect in society, God changed the world through them, and He's still the same God today. He is still exactly the same today. He loves people just as much, and he's just as good at doing what seems impossible. In fact, he delights in doing the seemingly impossible. And so today, we're going to see how one church, one small minority group of people in a huge city changed an entire city in a single day. And here's a spoiler, okay? So today, we're going to see a man get miraculously healed, the apostles get arrested, 5,000 people get saved, and the church prays so effectively that they cause an earthquake. No lie. All that's going to happen. We got a lot of Scripture to cover So we're going to have to go fast. I hope you'll have your Bibles open or at least be reading along on the screen. But the question I want you to ask yourself is, what would it take to see something like this happen here in Montgomery County? So chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Where is the temple? The temple's in Jerusalem. Why are Peter and John going there? Because they're Jews. Because even though they're now believers in Jesus, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. They haven't broken from Judaism yet. On Sunday, on Sabbath day, they go to the temple. During the week, they go at the hour of prayer. And on Sunday, they gather and preach in the name of Jesus. So it says in verse 2, Now a man who was lame from birth, listen to those words, from birth. Those are very important words. Was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, and, and so, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Now, let me tell you what's so amazing about this miracle. It would be amazing if any of us saw any person who'd never been able to walk before walk now. This guy is healed, and he's been lame from birth. He's been crippled since the day he was born, so he has never walked before. So that means that God not only strengthened his legs in an instant, he instantly taught him to walk, which I think is pretty impressive. 
And I love the description of what he was doing. We have a dog named Gracie. We, she's always been a city dog. We've lived in the city as long as we've had her, which is about 10 or 11 years. But every time we go see my parents out in the country, as soon as we get there, we open the door and Gracie hits the ground and just starts running because she's just so overjoyed to see so much open space. And it's so fun to watch her. It's just such a just such a joyful thing to watch. He's just doing laps. And that's what I picture this guy. I picture the joy in this man's life and his heart and his face as he is just running, he's jumping, he's shouting. And believe me, the people who were walking in the temple court that day, they know what's going on because every day they go to the temple to pray and they see the same guy sitting there with his withered legs, unable to move, asking for help because when you were crippled in that society, that's all you could do. And now they see him running, and that draws a crowd. And Peter, by now, knows what to do when a crowd shows up. So let's look at verse 11. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know has been made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then. And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. So here's Peter's message. If you want to sum it up into three points, which I'm a Baptist preacher, so I'm required by law to do that. So three points to to Peter's message. Number one, he says, it's in the name of Jesus this man was healed. If you want to know how this guy was healed, it was in the name of Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Because I don't know of any other name that anybody's ever been healed in before. Uh, That was too many ends. I know, don't kill me for prepositional abuse. But um, yeah, nobody's ever been healed in another name. Nobody's been able to be healed in the name of Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln or Margaret Thatcher or Winston Churchill. Nobody's ever been healed in the name of Jeff Berger or... Alan Armstrong or Christian Nance or Kathy Talbot, nobody's ever been healed in the name of Muhammad or Buddha or Joseph Smith or Charles T. Russell or any of the other uh, uh, founders of any of the world religions. Only the name of Jesus heals. There's something powerful in that. Second point, you killed him. Peter says, see, your problem is God sent you salvation and you rejected it to the point that he was nailed to a cross. You have a serious issue. But third, there's still hope for you. There is still hope for you. All you have to do is turn to him, and he'll wipe all those sins away, including the death of his son, and he will restore you, and he will refresh you. There is still hope for you. Now, what happens as a result of this message? Does it work? Chapter 4 says, verse 1, the priests And the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. 
They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now, quick pop quiz from last week. How many people got saved on the day of Pentecost? Anybody remember? 3,000. Somebody here in the student ministry named it. I think I know. Good job. 3,000 people got saved in a single day. This says the number of the, of the men became 5,000. Does that mean there was a total of 5,000? No, it means there were 5,000 men. We don't even know how many women and children there were. There may have been 10,000 or more believers in Jesus at this point. That's a pretty good day. That is a transforming day, but it's not even over yet because now they have to go, they have to stand before the Sanhedrin. And by the way, who's the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin are the people who succeeded in having Jesus crucified. So these guys are powerful. Not only are they the leaders of Peter and John's people, their religious authorities, but they are the ones who succeeded in having Jesus put to death. So you would think that Peter and John would be quite intimidated. After all, Peter has shown that when the chips are down, he turns tail and runs. Look what happens next, verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. And so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter Filled with the Holy Spirit. Wait a second. This isn't the same Peter, is it? This is Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a whole different guy. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Does Peter sound intimidated? It is by the name of Jesus who you crucified that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. That's a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22. G Peter's now throwing scripture at them. He is totally in, on his game. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We just sang that song. No other name. There is no other name that can save us. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note. These men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with him, there was nothing they could say. So Peter, old foot-in-the-mouth Peter, manages to leave these intimidating religious authorities, all 70 of them, completely flat-footed and speechless. They don't know what to do. They've tried their best to intimidate them. They can't. So all they can do is say, okay, don't you ever do this again, or it's going to be worse for you, and send them on their way. Okay, but that's just Peter and John, right? Because the rest of the church, they're just ordinary people. They're not apostles. So when they hear about this, they're going to have a very different response. Don't you agree? I mean, let me put it this way. Let's imagine in an alternate universe where Montgomery County is ruled by people who are hostile to Christianity, 
that our county judge, our county commissioners, our mayors, our councils, our police are all against the spread of this faith. Let's imagine that you hear this week that me and the entire ministerial staff have been arrested and we've been told, we've spent a night in jail and we've been told the next day, okay, next time we catch you doing something about Jesus outside the walls of your church, you are going to go to jail for a long time. We're going to lock you up and throw away the key. And that goes for everybody in your church. You let them know it's fine to believe whatever you want to believe about God, but you will not spread this message. You will not talk about him outside the walls of your church. You will not preach in his name. Now imagine that happens. Sunday morning we show up. We report about what happened and what was said to us. And we say, hey, everybody, let's all pray. And we just we just open it up for spontaneous prayer. What do you think we, as God's people, would pray in that situation? Now, I have an idea. I have an idea that what we would pray is, Lord, please protect us. Lord, please don't let us go to jail. Lord, I, I can't afford to be arrested. I'll lose my job. If I lose my job, I'll lose my house. If I lose my house, I'll lose my family. Lord, please, please, please give us favor among the people who rule over us so that they'll leave us alone. Isn't that what we would pray, don't you think? In fact, y'all would probably tell me and Alan and the rest of the staff, hey, guys, let's dial this down, okay? Let's just, let's just settle down. So we're going to skip verses 18 through 20. Let's jump to... Uh, let's jump to verse 29 of chapter 4, because this is the middle of the prayer meeting, and this is what the people of Jerusalem actually prayed. Verse 29, now, Lord, consider your threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, if one of us had been in that prayer meeting and we would have heard that prayer, we would have said, are you kidding me? That's what got us into trouble. You're asking for more. We don't need more boldness. We need wisdom to be quiet. But no, that's not what they prayed. They said, Lord, make us even more bold. Lord, give us even more power to do even more miraculous things. How did God feel about that? Well, he lets them know in verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. So God was so happy with what they prayed. God was so desirous to let them know, I am, I am excited about what's going on in this body of believers, that He created a little, a little sign, a, a localized earthquake. This was God sending His hand down to, to high-five the entire church and to say, you keep this up. And I love to imagine that that would happen in one of our churches and to see somebody who had fallen asleep and suddenly, boom, they're awake, right? By the way, if your neighbor's asleep, never mind. Um, so what I love about this is God says, you want more boldness? I'll give it to you. If you think two guys, Peter and John, could do great things in a single day, Guess what happens when 10,000 of you have that same spirit inside of you? Guess what happens when 10,000 of you are that bold, are that passionate, are that led by my Holy Spirit? It was an amazing day. And I, I, I have to ask you, I have to ask you, would you like to be part of something like that? Would you like to experience that in this church, in this community? Because the answer you give reveals a lot. And I'm not asking for an outward answer. And, I'm not, and I know since we're in church, we're all supposed to say, Amen, Lord, bring it. 
But deep down inside, how do you really feel? Because honestly, if, if, we, if we shared our deepest thoughts, I'm sure there are people in this room, maybe a lot of us, who would say, that sounds great, but not for me. Because I, I, I'm just not ready to be that bold. It would be too costly to me. I, I just, I'm not ready to be that all in for things. Can't I just be Mr. Ordinary Joe Christian who shows up on Sunday and does my best to be a good person? Do I have to, do I really have to be part of something like this? And if that's how you feel, if that's how you honestly feel, I'm not judging you because I've been there. If that's how you feel, then my prayer for you, and, and, and honestly, maybe the best thing that could happen in this entire work, uh, sermon series is that a handful of you or maybe a bunch of you say to the Lord, Lord, I just have to confess, I'm not as excited about the things that you're excited about as I should be. Lord, my priorities are mixed up, and, and, and I just, I don't even want to be where you're trying to get me to, so Lord, change my heart and cause me to hunger for the things that you hunger for and to weep over the things you weep over and to get excited about the things you get excited about, Lord, change my heart. Would you pray that kind of prayer? And as for those of you that would say, yeah, absolutely, Jeff, if that could happen today, I'd be so excited. I am with it. I am down. Let's do it. Bring it on, Lord. Let's see it happen. Well, how does it happen? What ingredients are necessary to see a community get changed by a small group of people? In this, in this story, there are three things I see, and I'm going to run through these quick. I know we're getting close to noon, but three things we see. Number one, undeniable power. Undeniable power. You see, everybody in that courtyard that day knew who Jesus was. They lived in Jerusalem. They'd seen Jesus just a few weeks earlier stand before the Sanhedrin and then stand before Pilate and be nailed to a cross. Some of the people in that courtyard may have even been in that crowd that shouted, crucify, crucify. All of those people saw Jesus as someone who was a false Messiah. They'd had their chance to follow him. They had rejected him. Let me tell you something. They were not going to believe in Jesus no matter what Peter or John said. No matter how eloquently they preached, it wasn't going to be enough. They had to see a sign of undeniable power to show them they'd been wrong. And I say all that because... In churches, especially among people my age and older, we were trained to believe that all you need to make a church effective in its community is to have a really good preacher and some good music and a nice building and some well-run programs and then people will come flooding in and they'll hear the gospel and they'll get saved and that's how you change a community, right? It starts with hiring the right people and building the right building and getting the right leadership. That's all you have to do. And I don't know if that's ever been true, honestly, but it's certainly not true now. Because I got news for you. Your neighbors, they're not looking for a good church. They're not looking for a church at all. People are moving to Montgomery County left and right. I mean, by, in, in, by the hundreds every year, they're moving to this area. And when they get here, nine out of ten are not saying to themselves, well, now that I'm in a new place, I need to find a church home. They're just not. That's not the way this generation is wired. They're thinking, i got to find a place to, to eat Mexican food or to eat Italian food, or I've got to find a place to work out. I've got to find a place to play golf. They're not thinking, i got to find a church. 
And some of them, frankly, would rather die than walk through the doors of a church. So it's going to take a sign of undeniable power to change their thinking, to put God on their radar screen and make them realize, I need Him in my life. And they're going to see that only through you. Most of them will never meet me. But they'll meet you because you're their next-door neighbor. Because you're the guy that coaches their kid's soccer team. Because you're the woman who comes into their, uh, into their beauty shop to get her hair done. Because, because you are their co-worker, their, their friend's friend. And you meet somewhere along the way, and they need to see that you're a person who, when they're struggling, you come and put an arm around them and say, hey, let me pray for you. And when you pray for them, things happen. Or they need to see in you that there's been a change in you. They knew you before, and now you're on fire for Christ. Or maybe they see someone who you invited to church, you shared the gospel with, and their life gets turned around, and they see that. Or they see in you that when you struggle, you don't get afraid and you don't get bitter, but you instead continue to have joy and hope. They need to see undeniable power in you. So pray. Pray for God's power to be manifested in our lives and in our church. Secondly, second ingredient, a clear, effective message. The world needs to know what the truth is about the gospel because right now they don't know it. And they're not getting a clear, effective message from the church. Guarantee you, if all they know about Christianity is what they see on CNN and Fox News, and then when they stray over to those religious channels, they're not getting the message of Christ. They're not getting the gospel. Peter, for all his flaws and all his weakness, he spoke the truth in a very powerful, compelling, effective way. I could not do better. No one could do better than what Peter said here. And so I need to say this, and I need to say this often I love being your pastor. I know you love me. Y'all make me feel loved and appreciated. I'm so glad. But I want to say something. Part of you loving me well is you holding me accountable to preach the true gospel and to stick to the Word of God because I'm human and there's always a tendency that I might just start throwing in my own opinions. I might have an agenda in what I say. I might stray from God's Word in some way. If you ever think I've said something that is not explicitly, completely biblical, come have a conversation with me. I need to hear that. If you ever think, you know, Jeff used to preach his best. Now it looks like preaching is is way down his list of priorities. He's just kind of recycling things. He's not really doing his best. Come talk to me. Hold me accountable. It might hurt my feelings, but I'd rather have my feelings hurt. I'd prefer that you do it in a loving way, like we're actually friends and brothers. But even if you come at me like a jerk, I would rather have that than continue to do a poor job of preaching the message of God's Word. And it's not just me. It's you too. Pray that God would enable you, whenever you have an opportunity, to speak truth to people in a compelling way. And that's why it's so important that you're reading God's Word right now. Stick with it. You need to be able to tell people the truth when the opportunity arises. They need a clear and effective message. Third, they need, the world needs, a church full of people with a passion for God's kingdom. I want you to think about this church in that, in that prayer meeting that they had when you and I would have to admit we wouldn't have prayed that way, most of us. But they prayed for greater boldness even though just a few weeks earlier most of these people weren't even believers in Jesus at all. 
Some of them hadn't even heard of him because they came from other nations. Even though they were Jewish, they came from other nations for Pentecost and they got saved that day. Some of these people were followers of Jesus who turned away from him when he got arrested. But now they were on fire for Christ. These people hadn't been brave before, but they were now. And God can do that in us too. God can transform us. James Emery White uh, wrote the book, The Rise of the Nuns. Uh, We've shared about that book. Uh, Our our staff read that together a couple of years ago when we were formulating our vision for the the near future of the church. Uh, James Emery White's church is in Mecklenburg, North Carolina. It's one of those rare churches that's growing very fast and not growing because people are moving into the neighborhood or not growing because people are leaving other churches to come there. They've done studies. They've, they've checked out the numbers. 70% of the new members of his, churches, of his church have no religious history at all. So they went from totally disbelieving in God or totally unreligiously affiliated to now they're part of a church that preaches the gospel and they are serving him together. How does he do it? Well, that's part of the book. But one of the things he said was, it's a lot harder now to reach people than it used to be. He says, churches have to work harder. Churches have to be more intentional. You can't just say, okay, we've got some good leaders and we've got a passionate core who follows them. Everything's going to be okay. No, every member is needed. These are crisis times for the church. Every member has to do their part if we're going to be effective. We have to be all in. And that is why this year we're pushing you so hard. You know we love you, right? We love you. I'm going to be here as long as the Lord lets me be here, which I hope is until I die or retire. Jesus comes back. We love you, but we're pushing you because it's needed. That's why we want you to read the entire Bible. And I know it's hard. You're in Exodus right now. In a few days, you're going to get into Leviticus. I'm sorry in advance. That's really tough, but stick with it. If you're, if you're not reading along with us, get a, a Bible reading plan out there on the all-in table. And don't start with January 1 and, and try to catch up. You will never make it uh, unless you have no full-time occupation. So just start today. Start February 10th and read along with us. Pray for the lost. We gave you a diagram several weeks ago, seven concentric circles. It's it's this great plan, a great way to to set aside every person you know who doesn't know Christ and pray for them daily. If you haven't started that, start that today. It's going to make a difference in your life. Commit to missions. Engage in missions. Today is the last Sunday we're going to have those missions tables out there in the atrium with all of our mission opportunities on them. And when you sign up for one, you're not saying, I'm going to do this. You're saying, I want more information. Once you get this going, call me and let me know so I can be a part of it. So today, go around those tables and see what do I want to engage in? What am I interested in? What do I want to know more about? And then finally, commit to generosity. Matthew 6.21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you want to see your heart change, if you want your heart to, to become more like God's heart, if you want the things of God to become more important to you, the best way to do that is to put more of your resources toward God's work, and your heart will change. The world asks us all the time, if your God is real, then why doesn't He destroy evil? Why doesn't he alleviate suffering? Why doesn't he fix the problems in this world? And God looks at us and says, you're my body. You're my hands, my feet, my voice. Whenever you're ready to start taking that job seriously, the world is going to be blown away by what they see in you. So the question is, are we ready? Are you ready?